I ran upstairs and um, Testagio gave me a glass of, a cup of whiskey. Yeah. Is it bird dog whiskey? No, it was bullet. He took it from Mark's office. Uh, and I didn't want to just be sitting here drinking straight whiskey, so I put uh, Celsius in it. Uh, oh. It's good. What no, flavor Celsius? Hammer, what Celsius is that? What flavor? I didn't look. We're sharing a can. <laughs> Orange. Oh, I just had the peach green tea one. It was pretty sweet. It works really well with bourbon. Huh. You know, there's a lot that works really well with bourbon. Yeah. <laughs> My go-to drink is... Uh, unsweetened iced tea, lemonade, bullet bourbon. And margaritas. So like a margaritas. Like an Arnold Palmer with bourbon. It is. I I call it an Appalachian iced tea. <laughs> it's like the new version of the vodka Red Bull. Sometime when bourbon Celsius. Sometime when you're in the mood for a Bloody Mary, have it made with rum. Ooh. Oh. I'm not what? I'm neither a fan of rum or Bloody Marys. You'll never have another Bloody Mary with anything else. Maybe I should try it with rum. That's what I'm Two saying. Two things I don't right. really enjoy. Try the combination. Yeah. It's the okay. smoothest Bloody Mary you'll ever have. Okay. See, I, I hear rum and think on a beach in the Bahamas. <clears throat> That's all I can think. Rum, but, yeah. but you can still do a beach in the Bahamas with, with a, a, a rum, Mary, rum Bloody Mary. True. A celery stick and a, lemon, <laughs> a little umbrella. A lime, pardon me. Go to rum and Coke. Rum and Coke. You'll age out of that. One yeah. day. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. Yeah. yeah. No, one day. Yeah, the sugar hit will be enough to say I can't do this anymore. Yeah, well, that's what the um, Appalachian iced tea. Yeah, I, there's a uh, like the unsweetened iced tea, and then a lemonade that is no sugar lemonade. Perfect. And so, like taste wise, it's kind of bland. It's like, uh, like it doesn't really have a lot of. It's a lemon flavored water, water. kind of. They it's, make spiked water now too. Well, what's nice about it is the so the unsweetened iced tea doesn't have a lot of flavor. The lemonade doesn't have a lot of flavor. But with the bourbon, it allows the bourbon to come out. Exactly. And so, without being overwhelming. And so it- You have a very sophisticated palate, James. I, I'm so, <laughs> only when it comes to alcohol. No, and so it the bourbon is the sweetness and right. the flavor. Right. And those other two things soften it. And so if you like bourbon, you'll like this drink. And if you don't like bourbon, you will find it disgusting. See, <laughs> and, and that's why rum in a Bloody Mary works because it allows the rest of the ingredients in the Bloody Mary to stand out. Oh. The, the tomato, the spices, the, the, the lime. And so you know, it's, it, it, it makes it super smooth. Do you make any, do you have like any other specialty cocktails? No, because, um, and I don't drink much bourbon anymore, but I, I would just drink bourbon neat. Mm. And um, what's your go-to? There's a number of them. <laughs> um, and some of them are, you know, well-known brands. Like I like Bullet. I like Maker's Mark. Um, I love, um, oh shit. I can't think of it right now. There's like three or four I go to. I'm, I'm not. I'm not on any one by itself. I'm not trying to segue into the topic, but <clears throat> there's a segue here. Maker's <laughs> Mark. I always used to see it as like my dad's brand. Mm. Okay, so I didn't want it because I didn't want the old man brand. So mm. I would drink other things. Right. Bullet, for example, Knob Creek because they had a cooler bottle. Yep. But now, and maybe it was a purposeful marketing ploy, they started hitting younger audiences and they were doing like they had they ambassadors. To, oh, ambassadors. Yeah. And now the people I know who drink Maker's Mark are younger than me. And so it went from I'm too young to drink this to <laughs> I'm now too I'm too old to drink Maker's Mark. What's what's interesting about bourbon, because of course it's if it's truly bourbon and it's defined by Kentucky, hmm. is that, you know, in most other parts of the country, it's not true today, but years ago, like if you didn't live in the Mid South you didn't really drink it. 
uh, or it was the old guys drink, right? And I think what has happened is as their distribution capabilities have fanned out mm -hmm. and they were able to just distribute more nationwide, then people started to experience it as something new. And so, yeah, it is, it is far more in demand now than it ever was. And what's really interesting in terms of demand is the international demand for it. I was actually just going to go there because I lived in, in Europe for a little while and I like, I've always liked bourbon and more so than it. So I would like, I don't want a cocktail oh, unless it's bourbon. Right. right. And then you could only find, which I don't even think is defined as bourbon is Jack Daniels, right. which is right. not a sour, ma sour mash, sour right. mash whiskey. And that's what you'd find everywhere. Right. And that was the go-to. Now you can find bullet and just a, in a regular old bar in Belgium, right? which again, years ago, if you went to a bar that had it, you would pay a ransom for it. Hmm because it wasn't widely distributed. And it was considered by people that lived in countries a delicacy. So, you know, here, it's here. Yeah. No one thinks of it that way. Yeah. It's, but, I mean, I think if anything, it's brand is redneck. It comes, we think it is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but for those that live internationally that don't necessarily understand that stereotype. Um, or that history. They don't look at it that way. Well, yeah. the average American bourbon drinker today, about 47% have some to a college degree. Yeah. I'm not surprised. I think I've generally failed to introduce a good episode every, any episode. Well, um, so I'm not going to start now. Uh, <laughs> and I actually coming here was like, I don't know what the topic is. Generational uh, I, marketing. I know I had to look, um, I, had, I had to look also. <laughs> okay, thank you. Because we, we pushed it a couple of times and we haven't, yeah. you abandoned me for a period of time, two days, <laughs> two days. I missed you. Um, and then I also moved offices. Oh yeah. So I'm used to seeing Sam a hundred times a day as I walk by. Our constant talk. flow of communication has dwindled. Yeah. And so this is us catching up right now. It's okay. <laughs> um, but Craig, can you introduce yourself for us so that I don't have to do an awkward introduction? Sure. <laughs> so I'm Craig Wilson. I'm vice president of marketing strategy and my background is business and marketing strategy. But in addition to those backgrounds, I also have experience in marketing uh, with business-to-business -business organizations, consumer packaged goods organizations. I've been a part of startup organizations. I've done uh, national consulting uh, with uh, marketing strategies. And, and also I have a background in new product development, product launches. Uh, I've, I've often joked with people here that uh, if you hang around long enough, you get to do just about everything. So I have a pretty broad and deep background that cuts across many different industries, both business to business and, and business to consumer, which is very helpful in a role like this in an agency where you're dealing with a diverse number of organizations doing a myriad of different things. And one of the things that I really enjoy about being here is the fact that clearly no one day is like the next. <laughs> so um, it's a pleasure to work here and it's a pleasure to be able to apply my knowledge, expertise, and also learn from others about the state of marketing, which frankly is changing every 10 minutes. Yeah. How would you say that marketing has evolved throughout your career? I think part of it, well, clearly the digital age has yeah. changed it. <laughs> so um, marketing started out in a very traditional sense. And, and of course, the, the big players started, at least were recognized for marketing as it's defined <clears throat> in the 1950s and 1960s when companies like uh, Procter & Gamble and Colgate-Palmolive and others that were really into the discipline of understanding target audiences and understanding needs and unmet needs and trying to fill those needs with 
products targeted specifically to those audiences. That's really when things started to happen. Mm -hmm. The other thing that made that period of time unique, and I would say that period of time also transcended into the 70s into the 80s, what made that period of time unique was you didn't have digital tools and resources. Mm -hmm. So you had to rely on things such as advertising, mass advertising, because we didn't have uh, cable, we didn't have um, radio like, um, what can I say, um, radio channels that mm. weren't necessarily AM or FM. Mm. Um, so, you know, you really had to rely on mass communication. And it was often done through brochures and collateral. It was often done through advertising and radio. It was often done through events like trade shows. Um, and you had to anecdotally determine whether what you were doing was successful. What's exciting about digital marketing is that the science of it and the technology of it and the brilliance of it gets to things that are almost scientific. And in fact, they are scientific. They are, yeah. yeah. So, but, so, so in that respect, you can do a lot of different things, approach your audiences in a far more targeted way, get the feedback quickly. Yet what you have to be careful of when you get the feedback quickly is not necessarily making changes quickly. Right. Bake the information. Let it, it, let it instill itself into the data and into the trends and then make changes. But I will tell you, even if you wait four, six, eight weeks to make a change, that is still faster than what it was years ago when it might be months before you determine you had yeah. to turn the ship around. Yeah. yeah. It, it's really a difference between turning the barge or turning the boat. Right. Um, I want to touch on something that early on there, what you said is about the like Colgate, the PNGs, about their efforts of the ability to launch or, or target products to emerging needs, right? And you, you say the 50s and 60s, and earlier today I was talking about the creative revolution of the same period. And it's interesting is, obviously from where I sit on the creative side, I say, oh, well, that period was the creative revolution. It was when ideas started generating, stories told in new ways, brands built and connect with people in new ways. But even just what you're saying there is certainly, yes, it was the creative revolution, but the creative revolution probably only existed because of what no one talks about is the strategic revolution. Mm. Correct. And so, you know, think about it, the United States and marketing is a global issue, but <clears throat> or a global discipline, but in the United States post-World War II, there was enough demand in the United States by the people of the United States. And there were such demand for products and services that had been delayed because of the depression in World War II. Mm. That to some degree, marketing was easy because it was like, make it and they will buy it mm -hmm. because they didn't have it. Then as people started to have it, it compelled marketers to understand, well, that's not gonna work anymore. The easy way is over. Now we have to, to dig deeper. We have to understand what it is customers want mm -hmm. and start appealing to them for those very reasons. And so I do give, um, CPG brands like, um, mm. you know, Colgate Palmolive or a Unilever um, or a Procter & Gamble Credit. I, and I, my career started with, um, my marketing career started with Duracell. Actually, Duracell and Stanley Black & Decker. It was just Stanley back then. Now, now Duracell's part of, well, it was part of Procter & Gamble. Now it's part of Berkshire Hathaway. I mean, you know, it all changes. Yeah, yeah. But the discipline that I had in my career, my early part of my career, really got down to the fundamentals that still remain t true today. And, you know, you and I were talking about this earlier today. 
the fundamentals of understanding the situation, mm -hmm. understanding the economic landscape, understanding the competitive landscape, understanding the consumer landscape, understanding where you fit, meaning the company that you might be in, and, and where and how you fit in that landscape, what it is that you can do that's going to satisfy the needs of the audiences you're trying to go after, and then positioning yourself in a way that makes you believable, compelling, different, or relevant, and relevant, which is a brand value proposition. Mm -hmm. So the fundamentals of those approaches have not changed. The tools with which we're able to do it mm. have changed. Yeah. And from my perspective, for the better. I mean, the kind of micro-targeting that we're doing today, the kind of insights we're getting today, yeah. the kind of research we're able to gather quickly as compared to what used to take weeks and months to obtain. Mm -hmm. It's a different world. Right. What comes to mind when you say that, like that situational awareness, uh, the taking the moment, think critically, where are we, where are we trying to get, connect the dots, make a plan, like go there. It comes to mind the OODA loop. Have you heard the OODA loop? Mm -hmm. O-O-D-A. Um, what it stands for, I'm sure Sam Rubin could tell me, uh, but it is... Uh, it's observe, orient, decide, and act. Yeah. So it, it came from airline or um, military pilots. And that element is you are always in the OODA loop of observing, deciding, acting, move, like continue because things change, right? Moments change, stimulus change, problems change. Everything is constantly in change. And I think that what you're talking about and what we talked about of that situational awareness and critical thinking and an effort to continuous, to move continuously or to grow continuously. I find so much over my career of brands not thinking of themselves in motion like that. They think of themselves as static and everyone else's emotion and that's their fault. And so they, they have to work with our stability versus being in movement and a, a and part of change and needing to constantly change with it. Right. You bring up a really good point and I love the, the OODA loop concept, <laughs> but I love where it came from, which is the military. Mm -hmm. So, why, why does that matter? Militaries have to be very focused and disciplined. Their lives depend on it. Well, businesses depend on it too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so the, the challenge is, is to suggest, and particularly to our clients, and we do it all the time, it's okay to be comfortably uncomfortable. You have to be. I have a photography series called <laughs> Comfortably Uncomfortable. You, you have to be for the very reason you talked about, which is change is happening all the time. And so just about the time you go through that loop and you say, okay, I'm okay. It's like, well, no, you're really not. Right. Because it, the world, life, time, everything is always changing. Now, you don't need to freak out over that. What you need to do is be thoughtful and mindful and strategic. And if you keep that kind of calm in the storm and you create an overarching strategy and approach that deals with where you want to go, but allows you to adjust and navigate and tack when things change, cool. Unlikely you'll have to change the core strategy. It's when people feel they have to change the strategy all the time. That's a problem. That's a crisis. The other crisis is when people don't change the strategy at all. Right. And that's a crisis. But the, but the core direction one should take 
should be reasonably firm based on mindful, thoughtful, strategic thinking. And when it's done right, I mean, think of the brands that have maintained their identity. I'm, and I'm using identity from a, like a logo standpoint. Mm-hmm. Okay. And brand is far more than identity, but just as an example, Heinz ketchup, that, that label means as much to someone who's a hundred years old right. as a kid who's 10 years old eating a hot dog. Yeah. Have Did you, you s- seen their cre- yeah, the creative gonna... campaign? I have not recently. Oh, it, go ahead. Go ahead. So there've been a lot of like, faux Heinz where people are sticking ketchup in a bottle and calling it Heinz. So they made color swatches. Um, and they were like, if your ketchup is not this exact shade of red, it's not Heinz because they didn't want a less quality product to be mistaken for theirs. That's not even the one I was going to mention. Oh, what was the one you were It was another about? creative campaign where they asked people to draw ketchup and everyone drew, drew bottles of Heinz. Oh, and there you have it. Yeah. Because you so much associate ketchup with Heinz. Years ago, and I might be talking out of school in terms of the timing, but years ago, someone did some research on brands and logos. And they said that in most cases, particularly if you were in a city, you could stand almost anywhere in a city and find a Coca-Cola logo somewhere. Hmm. Whether it was, you know, we sell Coca-Cola here. Trash on the ground. Or it was trash on the ground, <laughs> yeah. or it was a billboard, or whatever. But the, the omnipresent uh, the omnipresence of brands like a Heinz and a Coke and others that you can think of. Um, I believe I had read somewhere that Coca-Cola was making like a push towards sustainability because it was a bad, bad branding for them to be washing up ashore like um, sure. garbage fills. Well, that probably leads into another topic you want to cover. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but on that, the Coca-Cola thing yeah. for a while, it became Starbucks in New York city and Dunkin Starbucks Donuts trash. In right. And so when I was living down there at one point I was in Astor place and someone, I assume a tourist said, Hey, where's the closest Starbucks? And I thought about it for a second. I said, literally any direction you head, you You'll will find, find a Starbucks. Right. Cause there is at that in Astor place, at least when I was living there, every literally every corner. So North, like Northwest, Southwest, Northeast, Southeast, there was a Starbucks all it's in not the Duncan, same. though. You can literally travel a block and find a Duncan. It's true. It's true. But, but the point's taken. Yeah. And then the trash are piled up with coffee cups. Mm-hmm. But I, I do want to close out the one thought, <clears throat> which was, you know, staying true to your core, mm-hmm. being able to navigate intact with the changes. If done right, you can be a very long lasting brand and business that adapts to change that will move along the course of the future with everybody else and survive. And we all know brands that do that. And we've all certainly learned about brands that didn't. Mm -hmm. Um, But back on sustainability, um, we've seen kind of the shift in mindset um, through younger generations um, that younger audiences are growing increasingly more socially conscious um, and this desire for brands to be taking social stances has increased from baby boomers who half of them think that brands should not say anything at all to Gen Z where one and two Gen Z want you to take a stance. Um, do you, why do you think that this has been happening? And do you think that like um, these younger generations are having an impact on the older generations? So, Clearly a number, there's a number of reasons this is happening, but one of them is news 
travels fast and it, and it travels everywhere. There is a greater, we are a globe. We are no longer a domestic economy. And as such, as we've evolved into a global economy, we know more, we've learned more. News being instantaneous allows us to know what's going on, good, bad, or ugly. And so I think part of what's driving this is that as a society, a global society, we are more aware of what's going on around us, good, bad, or ugly. And it has raised the level of awareness on things that people have passion about. Mm. Clearly, sustainability is one of them. And of course, unless you live under a rock, the two words of climate change um, <laughs> are in the vernacular every day. Yeah. So I think it's good that people care about these things. The question and the challenge becomes, as companies are living in this environment, is what do we do about it? And what position or stance do we take on it? And how do we approach thinking about it? So I don't know I have a clear answer for this topic, but I'm going to give you some thoughts. Okay. <laughs> it should be a very thoughtful process about what stand you do or do not take. There's an old axiom that says just because you can do something doesn't mean you should. By the same token, doing nothing is a choice. Yeah. So a couple things come to mind. First, what type of product or business are you in? What, let's use sustainability as the topic. Right. What impact environmentally or from a sustainability standpoint does your product have on the environment? And what steps are you taking to address sustainability issues? In recent years, there's been a lot of growth in like hotels, um, travel and transportation, the food industry, clothing and cosmetics. Uh, there's one more, but uh, they're all really big on like waste and sustainability um, and like not just how to make your business more sustainable, but how do you market it? So like if you're a coffee shop, maybe putting a green leaf on your packaging or something. Well, and I think you got to be careful because if you're going to say you are passionate about sustainability or you're going to be outwardly marketing sustainability, you better be behaving that way. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's one thing to say you believe it and have passion about it. It's another thing in the actions that you're taking with your products and your services from the beginning of when it's created to the time it is disposed of, you know, what steps have you thoughtfully or in reality have done to manage that process? So before you say something, make sure you're doing something. If you're not doing something, decide what it is that you can do. You can't do everything. I mean, there are just some things out of your control. Mm -hmm. But on the things that you can control, put a focus on that. And then once you have decided what you can control, and, it, you, and at least you have a plan to take some steps to do it, and then you are actively involved in doing it, then and only then, if you decide that's important, is to market that, but also understand the risks. The risks are that you're never going to please all the people all the time. There are things that are out of your control that people are going to be frustrated with you for. We talked about this um, in episode three. <laughs> Did we? Yeah. I need <laughs> to listen back. remember anything that we talked about. We talked about how um, you can't please everyone and speaking to everyone. Like. You're speaking. Yeah, Craig, like. have you listened to the podcast before? 
I'm going to throw you, I'm going <laughs> to challenge Sorry. you here. You know, I have not. Okay. Well, I think it's funny as I'm listening and I'm like, very different format than our normal episodes, which, <laughs> and I'm like, we should have known. We brought Craig. He's going to have so much to say that we just sit here and go, yeah, Listen, this yeah. is, this is informative. <laughs> this is good. Very different style. Cause normally what we do is I say weird, crazy things. And we get Sam, really off topic. Get off topic. <laughs> uh, Sam pulls us in, validates or, you know, talks about data and pulls random stats, but I'm enjoying this. This is very interesting. Well, and, and I want to touch upon a couple of other things as I was thinking about this topic for today. Mm-hmm. And so again, from a sustainability standpoint, get your plan, get your plan in order, get your house in order. And before you say something, make sure that you've really thought about if someone asks you these following questions, at, create a list of questions mm-hmm. and be hard on yourself. Now, are you talking about like CSR type like programs? Um, it could be educational. Yeah. Because I think of, and you could tell me again, I say opinion, you confirm the data. I feel like there's been this big push for corporations, whether it's global warming, supply chain issues, you know, issues, you know, the, the way they make the products they use, like whatever it might be, the impact they have on the world and the environment and, and society. It's been the, well, Younger millennials and Gen Z say 70% will prefer the brand that's doing something that's better for the environment. I feel like we've been saying that in marketing for a long time now, but at the same time as every time I've been brought in, in some sort of CSR or what's the other ESG or whatever the term is. uh, Like I worked on one that was a multinational CSR program with recycling efforts and they were changing the way that they were sourcing ingredients and helping societies that were in Africa that were, you know, that were in difficult times because of this, the way they were treated and the costs or the, the, what they were being paid. And it was like, we all had this moment of like, yeah, we did it. And people are going to buy the product now because we did exactly what the data told us to do. And then no one cared. So no one cared. And so what ended up happening was the thing that got people to buy was doing dirty jokes in social media. <laughs> so, so let me respond to that. Um, Our audience member is here. I, I don't think <laughs> that sustainability alone is going to be the core driver of increasing your business. It's, it complements your business. Now, for those on the fence who may be sustainably focused, it may be the difference between buying your product and somebody else's, even if that product may not be as good. If your product is not as good as the other, for those that are super passionate about it, there's an opportunity, but let's get back to the core of what the companies are doing. They're selling a product and a service to a target audience that has a particular need. And that in theory, you're satisfying that need better than anybody else. If you're not doing that, there isn't enough sustainability in the planet to prop up your business. So, what I think sometimes happens is people take their eye off the ball in terms of what consumers want from the product to the degree that those types of issues are important to a certain level of audience participation. I think it's good. So I'm not condemning it, but I'm just saying having that be the star of your show is risky Mm -hmm. because that really narrows your audience down very quickly. There was also a big shift um, towards sustainability after COVID um, that really like sparked the debate a lot more. Um, like we saw once people were traveling less, like air quality got better and everything like that. So I think that kind of pushed that back to the forefront of people's mind. 
Yeah, yeah. I, it was interesting that air, global air quality improved dramatically in the two years that everybody was locked down. Yeah. Now we were all going nuts. <laughs> I, I loved it, but I welcome the next one. Well, it's interesting because some people really did love it. Yeah. And for some of us like me, who are extremely E on the extrovert scale, I was going out of my mind. Mm. But, um, but again, just to kind of close this out, yeah. I, I think sustainab sustainability is an important issue. I, I don't think there's anybody here that would say they don't give a damn about the planet. But again, a thoughtful plan of application of how you use it, what you say about it, how it ties in with what you're doing about it is important. Otherwise, you come off, come off disingenuous right. and you end up potentially creating net negative brand value. Yeah. Craig, I want to introduce you to something on the show that you haven't experienced before, and that's <laughs> our studio audience. V, can you, can you do V him instead of me and sit over here? Yeah, sit over here. So what V does is, <laughs> as our studio audience is she sits in my eye line and she reacts to the things being said and tries to throw me off. And she, she mouths things at me to get me to talk about things. Spoiler alert, after we have Suave come on here next, yeah, these, yeah. These, we're getting B. Yeah, so, <laughs> so you know, she's, and if you see me make faces, uh, it's because she's behind you trying to get me to react. Is she also saying, get this guy out of the chair? Is that what she's saying? No, <laughs> oh, she's okay. actually right. supporting with her hand motions what you're saying. Okay, all right. But she's trying to distract me. And so if you listen to one of the episodes, I want to say it was three. I actually said yeah, afterwards, I was like, three. I'm going to sound crazy in this because I'm talking to V without saying no, V's in studio. No, but did a great job of editing like the silence. And it, oh, like, really? okay, the flow is good. great. Good job, Chris. Yeah. So she, that's part of the insanity of this is cool. V making me seem crazy. I'm not sure you need V to make <laughs> you seem crazy, but that's a separate issue. Well, I mean, yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So... This is the first time I'm going to keep us on topic. Okay. Uh, the generational market thing, you sent both of us an article that I will admit I did not read. I sent, I did? You did about video games and the connectivity of parents to kids. Wow, you just blank face. I, you sent an article to both of us. Did you read it? Hold I on. did, but it was a while ago. And okay. the refresher would be cool. All right. So, what it was ultimately with the end. I can't get into detail because I think I just read like, like a our belief. only Slack message between the two of us is, no, "Hey no. Craig, do you have an interest in being a guest in Revelations?" <laughs> <laughs> no, okay. So this was it about. <laughs> so if you think about sports, I am a major Notre Dame fan. Football. I feel sorry for you. No other sports. We won this weekend. I know you did. Uh, after <laughs> a rough last weekend, um, but I am a Notre Dame fan because my dad and my aunt, and my mom, and my sister, and everyone else. And we are Notre Dame fans because of my grandfather. Okay, It is an Irish Catholic thing. It passed through the family. You watch together. I, if I were to text my aunt and say, what do you think about the game Saturday? How do you think Hartman's throw? Like, she'll, she'll be able to respond. Sure. Like, it's a family thing that we're all connected over. Oh, no, it's blood. It is blood. But oh, I video games article. are yes. not blood. Right? right? There is not the same connectivity. There's not the same legacy or handing down or bond or any of these things. And so what will happen to video games? How does it evolve over age and, you know, change of life? And they don't, it doesn't have the same lasting power, you know, the, the, the presence and the power to go over time. Cousin, I don't know how exactly we're related. Some I love that I'm explaining an article that you that sent. I sent and don't remember sending, but he works 
something in the video game sphere. Um, and he talked about how like video games are something that every generation, like you get my grandparents who were playing solitaire online mm-hmm. and then you get like the younger ones who were playing, like my roommates were playing call of duty. Um, so it's a very big market that spans across generations. But your grandfather is not playing video games. And I think the article and we can't, talk about it because we I don't, don't know. I don't remember I think it was sending tying this article. To esports and they were trying to create generational bridges it. around esports to get people excited and and to join into it together the same way you would watch a game on a Saturday. Right? I send it? Maybe I sent it to you on LinkedIn. I don't know. I think that's me. What this is bad podcast. So let me sorry, sorry, let sorry. me <laughs> let me respond to an article I can't remember. <laughs> with, with the conversation that you just had. Mm-hmm. I send James a lot of LinkedIn posts and he does not respond. So my response is the following. I think gamification that's inclusive or creates a fun, engaging, inclusive atmosphere for a number of people, let's say family as example, can be fun. I mean, what difference is that from, say, what used to be years ago, board games, or sitting around a TV and watching a Notre Dame football game? Mm -hmm. But I think to some degree, gamification has gotten a bad rap because it comes off very solitary and very individual. And I think, or that it's just trying to sell you on something. Correct. Right. Gamification is a way for us marketers to engage people in, in order to sell them something. Exactly. And again, I'm, I'm not passing judgment on whether that's right, wrong or indifferent, <laughs> but I think the, the, the mantra for many is people look at people playing games and it's very solo. It comes off from an appearance standpoint, being very solo. So the collaborative aspect of engaging people into a game across generations, I think, is, is worthy as a connective tissue between people that really didn't grow up with it, people that grew up with some of it, and people that are doing it all the time. But it, it's about bringing people together. And I think without bringing people together, and I'm, I'm talking about outside of the marketing application of trying to you know, sell a product or a right. service. Or the, or the online <clears throat> component, because that is... Different. spread wide as opposed to like long-term or enduring. Right. But like a father to a son, a, a mother to a son, like it does, there's no sustainability over time with that. Correct. But you know, as a, as a way to engage multiple people in something they can all share in, I think it serves a purpose in trying to get people to engage in new technology and in a fun and engaging way and say, wow, you know, I'm, I'm starting to get comfortable with this. It's okay. Or I understand why this person's doing this, you know, but, but without the collaborative piece, without bringing people together with it, it's going to remain a solo act that will continue to stereotype gaming as something that's very by yourself with very little social value except to, to please yourself. Well, you know, again, I didn't read Sam's article, but I remember seeing it. Apparently Sam didn't read her article <laughs> yeah, either. Um, but I remember seeing it and thinking, Okay, so I think it was, the, I, I want to say it was about esports and like League of Legends and the audience is growing out of that environment, right? And they're not passing it to their kids for whatever reason. And I, I'm, I'm hoping Sam is looking in Slack to find it. So oh. I'm not just, no, she's not. I was looking up stats about video games. But you know, what's interesting while she's looking up stats in the article that you and I either haven't read or forgotten or yeah, yeah, other yeah. things um, is that, Companies that produce these things should think about. I think that's the point of the article. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> the, the point of the article is you're, you're, you're targeting very specific 
stereotypical audiences. And you're going to get the same result every time, which is you're going to keep going after, and I'm using the term loosely, you're going to keep going after kids who, yeah, will have an influence on things that maybe their parents will buy or maybe they can buy because they're old enough to do it. But there's a much broader market out there that you could be going after, but in a way that benefits more people and not a solo marketing act. And so I, I just think there's opportunity there, but they're not touching it. Yeah. You know, I, don't, I don't perceive they're touching it. I'm having trouble finding it because Slack changed their interface and now I can't find anything. <laughs> Which leads me to the comment I made earlier, just because you can do something doesn't mean, yeah. doesn't you, mean should. you should. Yeah. Well, so the, the topic of generational marketing, um, I'm interested to hear both of your opinions coming from different generations because I find it interesting and it's, it's been on my mind in the last 24 hours or so uh, about the need to think about to, and to understand the psyche of many generations. And we talk about the strategic slash creative revolution of the fifties and sixties and your consumer was pretty small per product at that point, right? Or at least the way they approach it. We are talking about in terms of demo, a very small audience. It was very purposeful, very focused. Um, but now our conversations shift from boomer to yesterday. And the reason it was on my mind so much was we're talking about gen a gen alpha. And so we have to, in the same conversation, understand gen alpha, gen Z, gen Y, gen X, and maybe boomers. Why is because in this case, we're talking about this older high school student who is engaging with media or influence from everyone in these audiences, including potentially their grandparents. Mm. And so to do this thing we have to do, we have to take into consideration the psyche of every single generation at once. So I want to bust some myths about boomers. All right. Yeah. Go bust some myths, Greg. Um, just because we're of a certain age group range doesn't mean we're dead. It doesn't mean that we're digitally not savvy. No, that's true. The average boomer spends like two and a half hours online a day. In other words, I think just as we should not discriminate against race or gender, or I mean, go down the list, um, we shouldn't discriminate against age. The caveat is understand that target audience within that age group, how they obtain information, how they distill information in terms of how to approach them. But it's not a generation that's afraid to try new things mm -hmm. or attempt new technologies. Um, and then the thing to remember is, as a generation, I'm saying this in general terms, they have the money to buy it. Yeah, so They have all the money to buy it. So, you know, I, I just think, you know, we, we need to be open-minded to the types of things that we're doing, the types of businesses that, that are marketing to all generations. But like anything else, not every business with their products and services, um, were, are boomers a good target for some of these things? No. But how have you managed this? Like, like I said, it, for me to see this evolution of, or this expansion of multiple demos for you know, generational demos happening simultaneously versus targeting and I might say, or, you know, I made a joke in the past, or I didn't make a joke. I referenced something in the past, like, cheese it, anyone with a mouth, right? That's <laughs> not strategic, right? But what we're talking about with Gen A to Boomer 
marketing is part of the strategy and it makes sense. And so both of us have been, but you, you more have been on this, this timeline of focused audiences, more strategic and yet expanding at the same time. Right. Um, I don't have a clear answer for that, but like anything else, uh, particularly in the digital marketing world that we're in, be uncomfortably comfortable. In other words, because there is no answer, that means we have to find one. Yeah. And we might not find the perfect answer, but we're going we're gonna to experiment. Mm. We're going to try. We're going to create. One of the things, and I'm not necessarily trying to make a plug for Rebel, but one of the reasons why I love working here is that we really don't confine ourselves. Mm. We're trying to find a way to do something different. Not for the sake of doing different, but doing something different that has an impact. And I think just the desire to understand how we can expand cross-generationally into things that appeal, appeal more uniformly across generations is a worthy direction to take. But it has to be meaningful to the audience. Mm-hmm. It has to be relevant to them. Yeah. So it, it really comes down, again, it's getting back, and you and I have talked about this before, James, it, it gets back to the core fundamentals about what, what is it are we trying to, and I use the term loosely, what are we trying to sell? whether it's a product or a service or a cause, what are we trying to sell? What are the benefits of what it is that we're trying to do? How does that apply across generations? And it might apply differently to those different generations. It might mean something different to different generations, but if it has a benefit to those different generations, then again, this is where the segmenting, targeting, and position come into play. Holistically, it can be cross-generational. But when we start to communicate to those audiences, now we have the advantage of digital marketing to really target or micro-target those messages in ways that are going to resonate with them. Right. So and, you get that universal benefit. And, you know, contrary to targeting in terms of messaging strategy, media, content, creative, whatever it might be, uh, I experienced once a, um, an interesting approach an interesting strategy of cross-generational targeting where it was hit everyone at once, but the the point of this, the tip of the spear was aspirational. And what it was is they had an 18-year-old will buy the product, a 48-year-old will buy the product. They have different needs, they shop different places, and how can they fragment every messaging, content, creative campaigns, right. everything, speaking to these different people, was it, do they, then they place themselves too broad. And what the strategy ultimately said was, it was 28, the number 28. 18 year olds want to be 28. 48 year olds want to be 28. <laughs> F- focus on 28. Every model it's a great example. needs to be 28. It's a great example. <laughs> Everything the 28 year old does needs to be the thing the 18 year old wants to do. Everything the 28 year old does needs to be the thing the 48 year old remembers and wishes they can go back to 28. That's everything you do, everything you create, everything you say, 28. That's a great example because, and I'll make it personal for me. What gets my motor running in the morning is working in a digital marketing agency Hmm. because stereotypically my generation um, doesn't fit in it, but I fit just fine. So my point, the aspirational aspect is key. Older people want to be younger. Younger people want to be older. (laughs) We may not know what the magic number is, 
Although 28 sounds pretty good. Um, but I think thinking along those lines of aspirations along with needs is yet another dimension to create demand and engagement that otherwise you're not going to get. I'm going to, I'm going to shift into what you just said, but on the personal side. Okay. Okay. Um, (laughs) Excuse me. It's the bronchitis in me. No problem. So I say the personal side because I'm going to dig into you, not your experience, not what we know about the industry or our take on the industry, but your experience, you, you, what you just said there around fitting into a digital agency. I want to hear more about that. And here's why I'm asking, because yes, you fit in, you're highly respected. When you talk, people stop and listen, which is why if we do the math on this podcast, 85% is us listening to you talk, right? (laughs) We want to hear what you have, we want to hear what you have to say, but I want to hear more about you and how you approach it. Right. Not because you specifically, but I think it's an interesting take because I think every single person here and in the workplace is trying to figure out how they exist in it. Right. And so you have the experience. You've been in different styles of places, different industries, different many things. And I'm interested to hear how you place yourself in it, because even I, who have been doing this for over 20 years, say, who am I? How do I fit in? Am I doing this right? Do I look stupid? Right. There's anxiety and wonder in it. And, you know, for example, you you carry yourself with confidence. You dress better than any of us. And you (laughs) come, you swing from meeting me and I go, I I should get better clothes. (laughs) (laughs) And so you're saying like, yes, I fit in yet. You dress differently. You carry yourself differently. You speak differently. Take me through your placement here and the way you, the way you think, the way you feel, And how you get through that, because for the people like me who would say, I don't necessarily feel comfortable at day in and day out, you know, I'm not like V over here who's stretching and doing yoga (laughs) so comfortably and confidently. We all actually aspire to be like her. Yeah. Just a, I don't care mentality. Yeah. Um, So I think a couple things have to take place and I'm not always good at it. So let's, let's start with, I'm not always good at it. First of all, I think we all, me included, have moments of insecurity and a lack of confidence. And gee, I feel like a dumbass. Um, so it's good to have that because I don't know everything. Now, what I get energy from is I'm learning new things. This new, a newer generation of marketers have learned and have absorbed by virtue of their childhood, let alone their professional life, digital tools and resources and things that, that I never had. And, and they operate with them in incredibly efficient and effective ways. And I believe the younger generation of marketers is much smarter than when I started my marketing career because you have those things to learn from. So it's very important to remain open and open-minded. Now, I'm not going to tell you that I can operate all the tools that we have, but I at least know who I'm going to talk to to, to get help with them. <laughs> Experience is one of those things where um, if you're 30 years old in your career and you don't have as much experience, that's no crime, no foul. It is what it is. Experience is only as good as you apply it. But one of the things I've learned by working here is a couple things. One is I don't want to be that guy in the room that's telling you what you should do. Mm -hmm. Or, gee, when I was in that stitch, I did this. (laughs) You're like, I I. I will not be that guy. And 
I encourage anyone in this building that if I ever act like that guy, that you tell me. Because I, I hated it when I was younger in my career. The thing about experience, which I do love, is that there aren't many marketing situations that I haven't come across. So I, I, I can go into those situations with more, with more context mm. and more of a framework because I've been through them before. I'm not saying I've been through everything before, but I'm saying I've been through a lot of things before. And so being able to bring that perspective in the work that I bring, and hopefully as importantly to the people I work around, gets them to their solution faster than, otherwise they, than they otherwise would if that experience was not in the room. But it's important to remain humble. It's important to remain relevant. And it's important to treat everyone the way you want to be treated. And I don't care if you're old, young, green, purple, blue, whatever you are. But as long as you keep that human connection and respect each other and listen to each other, like not just you to me, but me to you, mm-hmm. um, we're all going to get along great. I, I enjoy the dynamic nature of this business. I enjoy the diversity of the business in terms of the different clients and the industries and the energy level and the people. And I, it, I feel very energized when I get here. I'm, I'm very, it, it, I feel very alert. I feel on point. Um, and that everyone wants to feel, whether you're young in your career or advanced in your career. Can I ask, um, you know, you have, I think we're, we're like three points on a timeline here. <laughs> and, you know, I, I sometimes have those like in my day moments, right? Can't help it. Think it often, say it far less. But one of the things that I, I run into a lot and maybe it's, I, I want to think it was point in time versus where I was at company of expectation of the grind, and so, you know, like we have not a very American thing to like, well, but, but it's, it's like what I try to avoid in the, in my day thing is, you know, someone will like, oh, well, you know, yeah, I, I really, I worked all the way till seven thirty, And it's like, what? <laughs> like I, there was a period of time where I had a sleeping bag at work because we would sleep there and there were issues like MTV. They had to have car services, drive us home to shower and then drive us back so we can keep working. Right. So we would work. And like one time I didn't see my next door neighbor for a month and they were like, Hey, where you been? I was like, oh, I've been at the office. They're like for 30 days. I was like, pretty much, pretty much. And so I have those moments of going, is that a generational thing and a point of culture in society where it's not that intense I was at a job interview or was I just at bad jobs? I was at a job interview, um, not for rebel for when I was still applying for jobs and it Phew. was, uh, whew, um, but it was the, they'd switched ownership and it went from, it went to like employee owned and the guy in the interview was like, yeah, like we're looking to get some young kids in here to do maybe some social media. Like we have a hybrid now we're pushing to two days a week, but you young kids come in, you're looking for work-life balance, <laughs> work-life balance. What's that? And I was like, man, that I could never work at a company that like, Work-life balance, what's that? Ha, ha, ha. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Why would you say that to me in an interview? Yeah, well, I mean, that's why I, I passed so, it to you, Craig, because yeah. I'm curious, is it 
Did I work for bad bosses and bad no. companies? No. Or is that, it's yes. a, it's a genera- he says it was a bad company. Well, it's a generational change. Generational change, but it's for the better. It's changing something that was broken. I learned so much. And yes, I worked hard, but the relationships I built, the exposure I got that created the experience that I have, I do, I do not believe that I would be where I am and I would be in a job that I enjoy if I didn't grind or struggle through a period of my life and have that, have that like ability to reflect on it. So what motivated you to grind and struggle like that? Like, were you just doing it because you were like, this is what I need to do? Were you really passionate about the company you were working for, the work you were doing? I was not passionate about the company or the work at all. That makes it even harder. Were you getting paid overtime? (laughs) Yeah. So like MTV, right? The shows were ridiculous. (laughs) (laughs) I don't even like saying what they were because they were so dumb. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, you're writing dumb jokes for a high schooler in Florida. Like it it was not that, but... It was the difference of seeing something as a job versus a career. Mm. And Mm. I was building a career, not sustaining a job. And so I knew that if I did this and I built this to the next opportunity, I will have a path towards something that is going to pay my bills, ultimately make me proud and happy in the long run, fulfill me. But if I look at this as like, I'm here, I'm going to do the bare minimum. I'm going to collect my paycheck. Uh, to me, that felt like quitting before I even started. Do you think that's missing from a lot of like millennial Gen Z employees? I don't even like, I'm scared to even wonder. That's where I try to stifle the, in my day thing, because I don't know. And that's why I asked the question is, is that demand different? Let me respond to that. If I may, um, <clears throat> there were people years ago that looked at as a, at a job as a job, get my paycheck, go home and be done. And frankly, they didn't really care about the career side of it. It was a means to an end. Again, generationally different. So that story you just shared, a similar story, well, at least I consider it similar. When I worked at Stanley, we, we, we decided we were going to totally revamp the merchandising program that was in big box retailers and hardware stores of how we um, merchandised our hardware. And so I spent six weeks home on weekends only in an abandoned factory in Norwich, Connecticut, laying out blister cards, drilling holes with a drill that would fit the hooks that the blister card was going to go on, and basically did dozens of merchandising boards with over 3,000 SKUs laid out to get approved by internal management that became the merchandising for Stanley Hardware in those retailers. It was tedious. It was long. I mean, I was putting in hugely long hour weeks, but I did feel like something tangible was going to come out of it. It's a lot easier to work hard and grind things out when you believe that the deliverable is going to be something tangible Mm -hmm. and meaningful and worthy of your time because it's going to make a difference. You know, one of the things that I think is important to think about, you know, we talk about sustainability and environment and all those things that are clearly social benefits. But the work that we do also is creating a benefit for the livelihoods of the clients we serve. Those people run their businesses. They have payrolls. Many of them have payrolls of more than one person. They're trying to make a living. Their employees are trying to make a living. They believe they're selling things that people want, which is a quality of life issue for their consumers. 
So they're trying to improve the quality of life for their consumers. They're trying to make a living for themselves and for their employees, for their businesses. You know, that's not a bad noble cause either. In grad school, I did a lot of consulting with our small business development center. And that was a really hard adjustment for me coming from that to Rebel, who works with a lot bigger businesses, because you're so close to the owners of these small businesses that like they're not trying to make millions and millions of dollars like they're trying to support their families and just like do what they love so getting back to your point though of work-life balance i think it's like anything you're you're willing to invest in something that you believe matters if you're not feeling that then that's pretty difficult to navigate yeah and i'm speaking for myself but you know i say like the what matters there was Yes, I say career, not job, not the job, not the company, not even the industry. Like as an industry, do I love advertising? No, 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 no. But I find joy in it. If I love storytelling, I love the history of it, right? When I hear what you're saying and I think about like, well, why did I, why did I take that edit that was for MTV Africa and work till 4am? It's like, it wasn't because I love watching MTV Africa, certainly because I've never <laughs> seen it before, except for the episode I edited. Um, what it was and what often comes through my mind in these moments is, and this is just, me, again, I can't speak to everyone. This is me talking personally is like, what would my dad say if I didn't do this? Like, what would my dad say if I didn't work hard? And I noticed that at times of like, well, my dad would, oh, my dad would kill me if I didn't see this through or if I lost this. Um, and that's again, personally. And at one point there was a struggle of, of working on something. And I, I actually was like, I don't think legally I'm allowed to ask this, but I wonder how their relationship with their dad was. And if it was <laughs> as intense as mine and like, you know, the, if you're leaning, you know, you're cleaning and, you know, wake you up early on weekends so that you can be doing work because that's your job as his kid. Like he worked me, he was a military guy. Like he understood the like hard work. His dad had two jobs. Um, and I was raised that way. Do I look like someone who's raised by someone that put together? No, but he put it a work ethic in me. Yeah. And I, I, I think about that. I'm like, what was their childhood like, right? If someone doesn't want to work or they don't think about what's next, and I often will go like, is, would my dad be proud of not the output, not because I wrote a fart joke in a MTV commercial or MTV <laughs> show, but did I work hard? Right. And did I bring my best and did I support the people, people around me? And so it, to me is very generational in that, that, that is what my dad instilled in me. And therefore that is my job is to do that is to be that because that is what he expects from me. But what's interesting though, is that sometimes success is born out of the families that didn't have that. Mm -hmm. yeah. In other words, my childhood was, I'm, I'm not speaking as Greg. I'm just saying there's people out there who say, my childhood wasn't that, it wasn't this, it wasn't that, and damn it, my adulthood is gonna be this, and it's gonna be that, and it's gonna deliver this for my kids, and mm -hmm. this is the way they're gonna grow up. Mm -hmm. And I know people like that. So what's interesting is the motivators can be positive, and they can be negative. Yeah. But life is what you make it and the ability to live it financially um, is predicated on work that's efficient and effective and smart. Yeah, at times it's hard. 
But if you work efficiently and effectively, and you work smartly, and at times when it's required, work hard, you likely will be successful. So it's, it is a work-life balance, yes, because if you're constantly working and your brain is melting because you, you just don't have time to think and you don't have time to recharge mm. and be that creative force or that strategic force or whatever force you are. And, you know, the old, very old axiom, you know, all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy. Mm -hmm. I mean, truly, if you're overworked, it's a bitch to be creative. Mm -hmm. yeah. Additional, and similarly, if you're overworked, it's a bitch to be strategic. Yeah. Because both require thinking and space and within reason, time and collaboration and the ability to take multiple thoughts with multiple resources and, and complement what you are thinking and back it up. Um, it, there's a lot of ways to be successful, but you, you, you have to put the work in. And so you are legendary for the wrap-ups. And I feel like that was the wrap-up. Like that tied it up nicely. And then you're legendary for wrap-ups. We are not yet legendary for having really bad endings where we just say bye we and stop recording. Bye. We don't have to well, end it. I will say this. I appreciate being asked to be a part of this. Uh, it was a pleasure to feel like I was a patient in a psychiatrist. <laughs> he said that he should lay across the couch. But, uh, we should have him lay across the couch. But no, I, I, I enjoyed being a part of this, and I thank you for your time. Yeah, thank, thank you, you. Greg. All right. All right. Bye. 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 Bye.